Hello, and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is a senior political analyst for the Washington Examiner, a Fox News contributor, and a resident fellow of the American Enterprise Institute. He is also the principal co-author of the annual Almanac of American Politics and has written several books on American politics and history. It is my great honor to welcome to the show, Michael Barone. Thank you so much for being on the show, Michael. Well, it's nice to be with you. Uh, I should add that my association with American Enterprise Institute is now as a emeritus uh, senior fellow, and I'm no longer um, writing and responsible for virtually all the text in the Almanac of American Politics. But those are indeed things that I have been doing a lot of work on for the last uh, 40 to 50 years. So, in fact, the first Almanac of American Politics appeared and bookstores on November 1971, exactly 50 years ago. Well, firstly, I'd like to ask you to tell us a bit, uh, to, to introduce yourself, Michael, and tell us a bit about your background and your political ideology. Well, I, uh, my name is Michael Barone. I grew up in Detroit and Birmingham, Michigan, where I attended uh, public school in Detroit and private school in Bloomfield Hills. I graduated from uh, Harvard College um, and Yale Law School and was a member of the staff of the Harvard Crimson and the Yale Law Journal. Uh, and um, what else can I say? Uh, I like to say that I've gone from one profession to another, each one paying less than the one before and having a lower level of uh, intellectual honesty and integrity. So I've gone from the law uh, down slightly to political consulting, and then a jump downward to journalism, uh, and the only thing left is academia. Uh, but um, uh, as for my politics, over the years, I have moved generally from a liberal to conservative, and when people ask me uh, the reasons for my movement, uh, my one-word answer is Detroit. Uh, I grew up there. I know large parts of the city block by block. Um, I was one of the people counted in the census of 1950, the 1,849,568 people. It's now under 600,000, less than one third of that number. Um, I work for the mayor, the liberal mayor, Jerome Cavanaugh, a very highly uh, intelligent, charming guy uh, in the summer of 1967. When we had the riot there, and I have seen what happened to Detroit uh, after that kind of violence, um, 43 deaths, a huge amount of property destruction, and uh, it, it was followed by a period of crime, um, econ high crime, economic dislocation, and so forth. And I basically concluded that uh, the liberal policies that I had favored um, didn't work very well, and uh, I have been looking for uh, other policies and other possibilities. But um, I've also tried in my political writing to be accurate, uh, to be fair-minded, to avoid the kind of writing that makes people who have different opinions from myself get very angry and irritated. I don't know that I've always succeeded in that. Um, I've processed, you know, some millions of words over the last 50 years, um, but at least I've tried. Well, the Detroit example certainly is an interesting one because, um, as, as you say, from the course of the 1950s and the 60s, um, Detroit uh, experienced quite a substantial decline. I think it went bankrupt uh, a few years ago as well. So can you please tell us a bit more about what you think was behind Detroit's decline um, and give us some certain policy examples? Well, I think what happened was uh, that you had 
uh, a period from 1965 to 75 where um, violent crime in America's uh, in, in America basically roughly tripled where welfare dependency tripled. Uh, you had Daniel Patrick Moynihan, then an assistant secretary of labor in a democratic administration warning in the 1965 report on the black family that uh, we were gonna be facing troubles and suggesting that the welfare payments that went to uh, uh, single mothers uh, were spawning a, 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 a culture of raising children, which in turn was producing uh, in many regrettable cases, uh, uh, violent young men committing crime. Um, and uh, I had thought that we had over a long period of time kind of solved those issues. Um, we saw um, the crime control measures um, demonstrated to be seriously, uh, to be seriously efficacious, uh, recommended by people like George Kelling and James Q. Wilson uh, in their uh, um, book back in 1980 and put into effect by Mayor Rudy Giuliani in New York most effectively, but also by many other mayors uh, and police commissioners, um, a preponderance of them Republicans, but including many Democrats as well. Uh, and crime went way down. Uh, we saw welfare dependency decline enormously with the passage of the welfare bill passed uh, by the Republican Congress actually three times in 1996 and signed at the third time by President Bill Clinton, bipartisan reform, uh, basically uh, reorienting the social work profession from giving people uh, money without strings to aiding and helping people get jobs. Um, and that has had very positive effects. What I see now is that uh, it seems to me we are in danger of unraveling these reforms. We have seen since the emergence of the Black Lives Matter group in 2014, and in particular since the death in Minneapolis in, in May 19, in May 2020, uh, the Black Lives Matter inspired riots around the country, $2 billion worth of property damage, multiple deaths. Um, we're seeing uh, an increase in violent crime, which is murders have gone up by a higher percentage than in any single year since we started measuring in 1960. That means any of those single years in that 1965 to 75 period when crime tripled. And we're seeing an effort, at least in legislation promoted by the Biden administration and the Democratic Party and Congress, uh, to return to the old welfare system, um, to not have work requirements, to not uh, nurture a culture in the social work profession of encouraging people to work, aiding them and abetting them and finding jobs and making sure they'd be able to perform well and earn respect uh, from their families, their children, their community and their neighborhood. Um, and we're going backwards. So I feel I have lived through one of these cycles um, and have seen uh, bad social uh, behaviors uh, changed um, in significant part by public policy. I fear that I'm not going to live long enough to see the current trends reversed as those that were apparent 10 years, uh, 50 years ago were. 
All right. So I'd like to start off today by getting your views on some of the policies put forth by the current administration. So you've been an outspoken critic of President Biden, recently arguing in a piece for the Washington Examiner that excessive stimulatory fiscal policy and the resulting inflationary pressure could culminate in large scale Republican victories come 2022. So can you please tell us more about why you feel that economic stimulus over the past couple of months has not had the intended effect and why this could mean a big win for Republicans next year? Well, I don't uh, claim to be an economist. Certainly, I don't have any degrees in, uh, in economics. I am an observer, and I hope one that's learned. And in that article for the Washington Examiner that you reference, I really was referencing the uh, comments of many other people, including um, some uh, Republican-oriented Congress uh, economists, but also uh, Democratic economists like Larry Summers. Secretary of the Treasury in the Clinton administration, like Jason Furman, head of the Council of Economic Advisors in the Obama administration, who have argued that the Biden administration's policies uh, in the bill passed last March and the bill currently pending uh, passed recently in the uh, House and pending in the Senate are pumping too much money into the economy and they're producing shortages, they're producing inflation. Uh, Summers has been predicting inflation, although he tentatively allows that he's not certain that that's going to happen. He started saying that back in February and he set out certain parameters, you know, where he said, look, if uh, X happens, that will tend to, you know, or if Y happens, that will tend to disprove my, uh, my, my prediction or my concern that inflation will be triggered. But so far, he's more worried about it, I think, in his recent writings than he was back in February. And um, uh, inflation is is poison to American voters. It's interesting. I made reference in that piece to inflations in the past. Uh, the 1970s, for example, was a period of inflation. And in a period of seven years, we saw three presidents rejected. Richard Nixon forced from office. His successor, Gerald Ford, defeated for a full term. President Jimmy Carter defeated after one term. Um, if you go back to the high inflation period after World War One, you had high inflation, then a recession. You had uh, you had some, a lot of civil unrest. You had, uh, you know, people, the historians write up that there was a red scare, a concern that communists would take power as they were doing at that very moment in Russia. Uh, the um, and, you know, there was something, I think, to be terribly concerned about. We saw what communism did to Russia in the next 70 years. Um, and easy to get rid of it. Perhaps uh, uh, we were lucky that, uh, that it was gotten rid of after only 70 years. Um, but that was uh, those were the concerns. And you found a huge repudiation of the uh, then ruling Democratic Party and the administration of uh, Woodrow Wilson, his successor and supporter, James Cox, the 1920 Democratic nominee, received only 34 percent of the vote. The Republican Warren Harding got 60 percent. Um, and if you go back even farther in history, historians have celebrated the candidacy of William Jennings Bryan on a free silver, basically an inflationary um, platform in 1896. And it's true that Brian uh, was an idealistic man of some considerable ability. He waged a very strenuous campaign, contrary to the usual practice at that time. Um, he got a lot of support and he won in areas in the West, for example, 
widely populated then uh, by many more votes than people expected. But he also lost. And he lost votes from the Northeast and the Midwest uh, Great Lakes states uh, that in those days cast uh, together something like 75% of the nation's votes. Uh, and it was those were really the showings there were really disastrous for the Democratic Party. Um, and they were very successful for the Republican Party led that year by William McKinley. Uh, Carol Rove has written a very interesting book about uh, uh, William McKinley, uh, and uh, which I recommend. Um, and basically, Americans, the majority of Americans rejected inflation. Um, and I think that uh, if we continue to see inflation, and I don't proclaim myself an expert and feel certain that, you know, we, my fears that we will do so are justified, we will simply have to see. Um, but uh, if we have that, I think it will be very damaging to the party in power. Uh, the voters know that the Democrats are in control, though, though very tenuously. Uh, the president was elected by critical electoral votes in three states by an aggregate margin of only 42,000 votes out of 160 million or whatever it was cast. Um, you had uh, the Democratic uh, Democrats have controlled the Senate by a 50-50 margin with the vice president's tie-breaking vote. And their majority in the House was 222 to 213. Um, when George W. Bush's Republicans held almost identical margins after the election of 2000, and of course, Bush did not carry the popular vote in that year, as we famously know. Um, the, uh, the Bush administration presented a bipartisan set of uh, policy proposals to Congress, including some tax cuts on which they were careful to accumulate uh, Democratic support from the start, um, and an education bill in which the Bush administration uh, really co-sponsored with uh, Democrats, including Senator Edward Kennedy, um, that uh, the course of proposing bipartisan legislation when your party majorities are very narrow, of course, followed successfully by Bush, is not the course that Joe Biden has elected to follow. On the contrary, we've seen very partisan uh, legislation, uh, the current uh, BBB measure, as it's called, uh, in the House last uh, Friday night, Saturday morning, uh, got zero Republican votes. Uh, it has zero Republican votes in the Senate. Uh, and we will have to, uh, um, you know, <clears throat> I think that there's a serious risk for the Democrats to have a downdraft. And when you look at some of the recent polls, um, You've had about five public opinion polls on the generic vote. That's question is basically which party's candidates are you going to vote for House of Representatives? Um, if you go back over our previous uh, several uh, election cycles at this point in time, in uh, the 2020, 18, 16, 14 and 12, five election cycles, the Republicans never led in the, uh, the generic vote at this point in the cycle by more than 1%. Um, in fact, uh, and they ended up winning majorities in the House in three of those five elections. Uh, the, uh, you know, this time they're leading by four points on the average. And you've got multiple polls from reputable pollsters showing them uh, leading by six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Uh, points. That's unprecedented in the history of polling, which goes back to 1935. We've never seen a lead by Republicans like that before. 
the highest percentage, the highest number of House seats Republicans have won since 1935 is 247, uh, which they won in 2014, and they uh, won 246 in 1946. That's their high point. Um, you know, if you're looking at a five, six, seven point uh, Republican popular vote plurality in House elections. You're looking at a Republican House that's got something like 270 members. We haven't seen anything like that since the 1920s. Uh, if that happens, and that's a big, big if, but if that happens, um, that's uh, really would be a devastating uh, victory for the Republican parties and a devastating loss for the Democratic Party. All right. Um, well, in addition to the, the stimulatory policy, the last few days also saw Congress pass the Build Back Better bill, which raises taxes on wealthy individuals and corporations, along with some, although with some deductibility caveats, and includes large investments in childcare, healthcare, and environmental issues. So there's been much debate surrounding the cost versus the benefits of the bill, with the administration arguing that the bill will be paid will be entirely paid for by the increase in taxes. Um, meanwhile, this has not been mirrored by independent research indicating substantial increases to the deficit over the next few years. So regardless, many Democrats insist that the investment is essential and will lead to economic growth. So, Michael, I wanted to get your take on the debate surrounding this bill, as well as the tax increases required to fund it. Well, I, I, you know, the President Biden and the Democrats claim that it will cost nothing that uh, is is the kind of farcical statement that politicians of both parties make about me measures that they favor uh, and which nobody but strong partisans on their own side are going to take seriously. Um, you know, the fact is that you're, uh, you, you know, you're sitting there with, um, a, you know, you, the, 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 they're rolling out, uh, you know, spending for limited numbers of years with the hope, expectation, and the confidence that those bill spending will be increased over the 10-year period and everything. The Congressional Budget Office, which is a pretty straightforward operation, has shown something like $300 billion, um, you know, cost over, uh, uh, over, over, uh, revenues increased. So, you know, I don't think we have to take the administration's claims on that seriously at all. Um, and I, I'm always leery of the, you know, the term investments. Um, what they're doing is spending. They're hoping that it'll produce dividends to society, some of which may be measurable in dollars and some of which uh, in the nature of things aren't really measurable in dollars, but uh, and about which people will have differences of opinion, but uh, which a reasonable person can believe will be beneficial to the society. Some reasonable person, many reasonable persons so believe about this case. Um, actually, there's, you know, there's a, there's surprisingly little increase on tax and high earners in this bill. And one of the things that's absolutely fascinating is that the biggest item of spending or uh, deficit increase uh, as measured under the Congressional Budget Office type rules is um, not a tax increase on rich people, but a tax cut for rich people. It's the increasing up towards 100% of the deduction for state and local uh, taxes on your federal income tax form. And the 2017 tax bill passed on a partisan basis by the Republicans signed by President Trump. Uh, that limited to, to the deduction for state and local taxes to $10,000 a taxpayer. Uh, most taxpayers don't get that. 
Uh, the, the Republican tax bill also increased the amount of the standard deduction, which means that fewer taxpayers have occasion to itemize because they, they don't save any money on taxes by itemizing. Um, and basically, the you know, people that are going to be able to deduct more are rich people in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and California. High affluent, high education people um, in heavily democratic states, in states with high government spending, with strong public employee unions goosing that that spending forward evermore, and um, those uh, the benefits of that tax bill, something like eighty percent of it go to people with incomes of seven hundred thousand dollars or more. Now you may be fortunate enough to be making seven hundred thousand dollars. Uh, I've never quite been in that uh, league, um, but um, the vast majority of voters don't make anything like $700,000 a year. Uh, and you've now got a struggle within the Democratic Party about whether or not this provision should be uh, included in the Senate BBB bill. It was included in the House version because <coughs> Nancy Pelosi, the speaker, was on notice. Uh, that a number of uh, Democratic House members from highly affluent, high tax districts in New Jersey, in Long Island, New York, and in California, were not going to vote for a bill that did not include that. Um, is she going to muscle these people into voting for that bill if the Senate uh, doesn't include it in its bill? Well, you do have the Democratic Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia. Uh, saying that one of the things he doesn't like about this bill is the increase in the deduction of state and local taxes, the SALT deduction, as we call it from its acronym. you got Senator John Tester of Montana, Democrat, who usually votes the party line. He doesn't like that either. Um, why are they taking this view? Well, you only have, you know, what? how many taxpayers in West Virginia and in Montana uh, are going to get big windfalls out of this bill are going to get tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars of tax cuts from that bill? The answer is very few indeed. Uh, and if you want to go campaigning in Montana or in West Virginia on the theme that we want to have more, uh, we want to cut the taxes for people making $700,000 in New York, New Jersey, and California, well, I say good luck to you. That's going to be a tough sell. Yeah, um, and that's something a lot of people didn't realize because it wasn't obvious at first. Um, obviously, um, you know, there the, most people assumed that the legislation coming from um, Biden and the Democratic Party at this point, um, given their campaign slogans and promises thus far, uh, they would expect that taxes, you know, when it would would be. Um, you know, taxes would be rising significantly um, on the wealthy individuals and the corporations like they've been um, talking about since the campaign trail. And so um, when they play with the deductibility numbers, that essentially means that the um, the part of your income that you pay um, in state and local taxes, you um, before 2017, you used to be able to deduct that from the amount of taxes that you paid um, in yeah. federal taxes. Um, the, the 2017 um, bill got rid of that provision. So now your income was viewed well, as limited, limited it to $10,000. Yeah. Some, which, something like which that, is, which is, which is the, the most that most people spend on state and local taxes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, I'm not sure if the, the exact numbers there, but yeah, it did um, remove some of those deductibility provisions. So people ended up paying more, especially in the higher tax brackets, ended up paying more. Yeah. In if, you make taxes. 20, 
if you make $20 million in New York, where the state tax on the high rate is 14.776, um, you know, what are you talking about there? You're talking about, um, you know, a lot of money. Uh, you're yeah. talking, you know, uh, yeah, so forth. Yeah. So um, obviously, this I mean, bill- a friend of mine is friend of mine in New York said, well, you know, I've got to pony up an extra $80,000 cash for my taxes because of that provision. Um, Even an affluent person says, gee, you know, finding another an extra 80,000 cash all of a sudden is a little bit of, you know, a little bit of pain. Yeah. So um, this this does in a way cut taxes for many of or yeah, it does give a tax break to many of the um, wealthy people and corporations yeah, get, that he's talking about get, taxing. Yeah, they get more money than the, they get to keep more money than they would under the current system. Yeah. Yeah. So um, in, in another piece um, recently, you outlined the historical trends that could be behind the president's decline in approval rating and talked about how increasing political polarization has led both parties to wait until they control both houses of Congress and the presidency yeah. to pass sweeping legislation, inevitably leading to a drop in approval. So given that we're now seeing this trend manifest itself in record low approval ratings, I wanted to ask you what you think the administration and the Democratic Party can and will do over the course of the next year to increase their odds of retaining control of Congress. Can we expect a relatively quiet year in terms of legislation next year or will the sweeping reforms continue? Well, what will the Democratic Party do over the year? The, um, those of those members of the Democratic Party believe in prayer will pray. Uh, and I, w- I would correct you on one thing. I think, uh, you know, the, the Joe Biden's job rating is not a record low. Actually, Donald Trump's job rating at this point in his term was lower than than Joe Biden's. So, um, you know, let's uh, you know give the Democrats a little hope there. Um, you know, they if you listen to Democrat optimistic Democrats who are involved in the political process or members of the press, almost all of whom are Democrats uh, and who are optimist temperamentally, uh, they'll say, look, the, the COVID restrictions will tend to go away. Uh, the economy will grow. The supply uh, chain disruptions that we've seen and the inflation spikes will prove to be transitory. We'll get worked out. Um, and um, the president's job rating will approve. We will not withdraw from Afghanistan once again in a disorderly manner because we ain't there anymore. Um, you know, uh, those things are all things that could plausibly happen. I, you know, made my projections or projections with the caveat that, you know, if opinion stays where it is today, and I've made the point that it's that that's always a big if. We don't simply know whether opinion is going to stay where it was today. In George W. Bush's first term, um, you know, opinion on him was pretty lukewarm until September 11th, 2001, at which point in terms of, in response to his response to those attacks, uh, his job performance rating went way up. And uh, the Republican Party was stronger in the subsequent elections than I think it almost certainly would have been um, absent to the rise in his job rating. Um, so we don't know, you know, any president can have a rise in that, including President Biden. We simply don't know if something like that will happen. None of us, I think, wants to see dis- some kind of disaster happen to our country. All of us would like to see a president respond well if uh, if some disaster occurs. So we simply don't know about that. Um, you know, I, I was making the point about uh, 
the difficulty of bipartisan compromise. Um, it's harder when you've got strong partisan feelings um, with an a, in a parity between the two parties and people voting straight tickets. You know, when I was first starting writing Almanac American Politics for the edition that appeared 50 years ago this month in November 1971, um, there were liberal Republicans and, and many, many conservative Democrats. Uh, they took, you know, people took different liberal positions on economic issues, conservative on cultural issues, interventionist on foreign policy, a wide variety of perm, uh, permutations and combinations of points of view. And that's one of the things that we wanted to help educate people about in the Almanac of American politics to present not just a single label for people, but to get uh, you know, specificity, specificity about the issues on which they were quote liberal or quote conservative. Political scientists back in the 1950s and 60s, um, the E.E. Schatzneider and other leading political scientists used to write articles, James McGregor Burns, the historian, wouldn't it be great if we had one clearly liberal party and one clearly conservative party, and then we wouldn't have all this ambiguity. Voters could vote for um, the party, and then the party would pass its program and get results. Uh, I think most of those political scientists were liberals and hoped that they, and believed and hoped that a liberal party would win most elections, run things most of the time. Um, well, in any case, um, their prayers have been answered. We have one clearly liberal party, one clearly conservative party. They tend to be pretty liberal on cultural, economic, and, um, and, and, and foreign issues. They're clearly conservative on cultural, economic, and foreign issues. Voters are most of the large percentage of them are clearly in one camp or the other, and elections are very close. Since 1994, the Democrats have won the White House more often than the Republicans, but the Republicans have won the House of Representatives majority more often than the Democrats. Um, so when you have a period like we had between 1952 and 1992, when the Democrats almost always had majorities in the Congress and always in the House of Representatives from 1954 to 94. Uh, and when Republicans were winning the presidency a majority of the time, um, you know, 16 out of 20 years between 1968 and 98, uh, between 1952 and 68, they were both parties won eight years of the presidency. So the Republicans were the dominant party in the presidency. Uh, you had the politicians compromising because they thought, look, if we're ever going to get anything done, Democrats and Republicans have to talk to each other because the Democrats have got the House majority. The Republicans have got the White House. We're not going to oust the other guys from their institutional advantage. So we better make a deal. And we got a variety of legislation out of that. You can argue whether it was good or bad legislation um, and so forth. Um, in a situation where you have the strong partisan uh, things, um, we have had divided government once again since 1994, most of the time. Um, but the parties are unwilling to compromise because they say, look, in the next presidential election, we've got a real chance. And you hear Democrats and Republicans say, thinking this out loud. We have a real chance of winning the White House, a majority of the Senate, majority of the House of Representatives. Then we can do what we want. We won't have to compromise nearly as much as we would have to, to if we had to work with the other party. Uh, and you've had those limited periods where you've had uh, trifectas. 
the Republicans six months in 2001, and then again between the 2002 and 2006 elections. Um, the Democrats in the two years after the election of President Obama, and now in the two years after the election of uh, President uh, Biden, uh, and the Republicans in the two years after the election of President Trump. So those times are rare. The parties do, uh, you know, uh, often pass the kind of legislation they want, and they don't have an incentive to compromise on the interim period. Um, in fact, this is not unprecedented in American history. If you go back to the 1870s and 1880s, it was the same thing. Very close contest between the parties, very few trifectas. If you read The Economist, uh, Douglas Irwin's history of the tariff issue and trade issues in American uh, politics and government, what he says about that period is, look, you're not going to get... Um, any change in the basic tariff legislation, any significant change, unless you have a trifecta. He doesn't use that term trifecta, but we've been using it here. So listeners know what I mean. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, you don't have that very often uh, in that period. So um, we got politics that resembles the 1880s uh, in many respects, except instead of Grover Cleveland and Benjamin Harrison, we've had Donald Trump and uh, Joseph Biden. Whether that's an advance or a decline, I'll leave to listeners. Okay, well, finally, I wanted to ask you about your take for 2024. So assuming that President Biden chooses not to run for re-election, which seems unlikely considering that he'll be 82 years old um, at the time of the election and 86 by the time he leaves office, um, there seems to be no obvious nominee from the Democratic Party. So unless we see another run, run from President Trump, there seems to be a lack of a Republican front runner as well. So is there anyone who jumps out at, uh, at you as being a likely nominee in 2024, given what we've seen so far? Well, I, you know, I, if you'd asked me at various times, you know, 2015, who were the likely nominees or something, I would have gotten a lot of my answers wrong. Uh, and at various times in history, and of course, the scuttlebutt that the, we're getting from the White House through leaked through various reporters' days, oh, the president really does want to run for re-election uh, in 2024. And I would expect him to say that whether or not he actually believes that or not, because he's going to have more power if think, people think he's likely to be around for seven more years than if they think he's uh, they're likely to get rid of him after three uh, more years. So, um, you know, I think the Democratic Party uh, does have a problem in that it's got a visibly aging president who may run for re-election. It has a vice president who has, uh, you know, in the latest polling, a 28 percent approval rating. And um, really has uh, has been uh, really the least successful vice president, in my opinion, since uh, President Carter and the late vice president, Walter Mondale, really worked to make the vice presidency a working part of the administration. As I think every vice president since Mr. Mondale has been. Um, it's not clear that Vice President Harris is following in that trend and or that she would be an effective uh, general election candidate. On the Republican side, we've got a bunch of people that have run before or might run again. You have the, uh, you know, kind of uh, senators like Marco Rubio, maybe Ted Cruz, Tom Cotton of Arkansas. Um, you've got Governor uh, Ron DeSantis of Florida. Uh, I think one party, the problem the National Democratic Party has is that um, 
its voters are so heavily concentrated in uh, coastal metropolitan areas, um, in, uh, in you know areas where they have 80, 90 percent of the vote in California and very large parts of New York metro area, large parts of Los Angeles, San Francisco Bay Area. Um, that hurts them for House of Representatives uh, because when your votes are concentrated in a few geographic areas, it's it's difficult. You have a you're penalized to one degree or another in any uh, system with equal population districts. We've seen that happen again and again uh, to the Democratic Party over the last 20, 30 years. Um, it also is a problem that your office holders are going to tend to have positions in highly visible states are going to tend to have um, take positions that are well to the left in order to win the Democratic Party nomination. Um, and that's going to make it harder to elect them general, as a general rule uh, than it is uh, when you've got Republicans, uh, as we've seen Republicans in the most recent elections, or at least in most many elections over the last 15 or 20 years, uh, win in marginal large states in, in like um, uh, uh uh, like uh, Florida, Georgia. Now you can make that an example, Arizona, Michigan, Ohio, uh, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. Um, those states tend to generate candidates who are nearer uh, the middle of the road and have greater appeal to independent candidates. The Democrats have had some candidates, some uh, winners from those states, but not uh, more. The Republicans have had more that are you know looking to make national careers. So uh, I don't make any predictions about that. Um, I think if you were looking at the year of Benjamin Harrison and Grover Cleveland, I don't think anybody, not many people would have picked William McKinley, who defeated for the House of Representatives uh, to be the Republican nominee in 1896. And almost nobody picked William Jennings Bryan, who was only 36 years old, to be the Democratic nominee in 1896. But they were. And... Uh, the issues changed somewhat. The electoral coalitions changed somewhat. And we saw the emergence of characters from uh, that changed what had been a sort of deadlock and polarized partisan parody. Uh, will we see that in 2024? I, got, I kind of doubt it, but uh, it seems to me that it's possible. And if we do, I don't know how to predict who will come out on top of that. Okay, well, those are all the questions that I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Michael. Okie doke. Send me a uh, send me a link to it so I can uh, apprise uh, any people that want to that uh, they can listen to it there. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you, everybody, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.